Well, good day, everyone. My name is Jez. If we haven't met, it is so good to be in the room together. If that's you, well done for dodging sickness or coming through sickness. Uh, it really is a privilege. And to you, if you're watching this on a screen, hello to you. What does Jesus' death have to do with being a Christian? What a great question. And I want to be really clear up front with the answer. It's like asking, what does the surf have to do with being a surfer? What does a ball have to do with being a golfer? What does Jesus' death have to do with being a Christian? Everything. So much so that if you take it out of the picture, you are left with nothing. At least nothing that represents the thing that we're talking about, a Christian. Just like if you take the ball out of the game of golf, you're left with nothing but a long walk. (laughs) Jesus' death is at the very heart of what it is to be a Christian. Because a Christian is a Christ person. A Christian is a Christ person. And so to understand what a Christian is, you need to understand Christ. And you do not understand Christ unless you've understood his cross. Now, that's a big statement that I want to argue for by going back to the very first accounts with us this morning. There are four independent accounts of the life, death, resurrection of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. We call them Gospels. And here's the thing when you come to reading them. They don't just have a lot of stuff about the life of Jesus, things that he did and said, oh, and then here's where he died. But actually, his death dominates all four accounts So that John actually gives half of the entire account over to the last week of Jesus' life and his death around those events. Half of the whole account. Matthew, Mark and Luke, we're looking at Matthew through this series, they give a third of their space to his death. It's huge. And significantly, only two of the four accounts record the events of Jesus' birth the things that we remember particularly at Christmas. Yet all four of them, his death dominates. The things that we particularly remember at Easter. Clearly the death of Jesus is central to the earliest presentation of Jesus. Which is why it makes sense of what has followed over the centuries so that Christianity has been come to to be represented by the symbol of a cross. Not a baby in the barn, not a bowl and a towel to represent Jesus' washing of his disciples' feet, not even an empty tomb, but rather a symbol of an execution, the most violent, horrific, shameful death a human can die. That, from the very beginning, is what was attached to Jesus. But why? Why? Why is it his death that is so central? Well, we'll come at the answer to that by asking this question, why did Jesus die? Why did Jesus die? Because after all, Jesus was in the prime of his life. He was in his 30s. He was young. He was healthy. In a sense, Jesus died a very untimely death. So why did he die? Let me run through five reasons that we can give for why Jesus died. Number one, because of the authorities. 
We see it referenced there in that reading that we just had, and it's up there again on the screen. Jesus says, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. These are the Jewish authorities, the people that rang the the Jewish religion, particularly based in Jerusalem. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles, which is a reference to the Roman government. The only power in the day that actually had authority to execute a man, to be mocked, flogged and crucified. Jesus died because the authorities killed him. Secondly, Jesus died because he was betrayed. Judas, Judas Iscariot, even if you've had nothing to do with the Bible over the years, you might recognise that name. He betrayed Jesus, one of Jesus' closest disciples. He betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver over to death. He set it up. Jesus died because he was betrayed. But thirdly, we must not think that Jesus was merely a helpless victim. Jesus died because of Jesus. He was determined to die. Now, he foresees and foretells his death. What we just read there is the third time in Matthew's account that Jesus has explicitly spoken of his impending death in Jerusalem. But he does more than just foresee it and foretell it. He orchestrates it. He actually makes sure that it happens. Now, if you were given a vision of your impending death, the circumstances around it, wouldn't you do everything possible to avoid those circumstances? You get a vision, you're going to die in a parachute accident. Well, not if I never jump out of a plane... (laughs) I'll dodge those circumstances. Jesus, he foresees, he foretells it, and he goes to the very place and people that will execute him. And when he's brought before these authorities to give an account of himself, something of a court-like setting, Jesus doesn't offer a defence. He doesn't try and get himself off the hook. He remains quiet. And the very few words that he does speak, whilst he speaks the truth, are actually intended to provoke a response in the authorities that will see him crucified. Jesus died because he was determined to die, because he saw that it was at the core of his mission for coming to earth. Fourthly, Jesus died because his death had been long announced and anticipated by the prophets. That is, centuries before the time of Jesus, God spoke through the prophets that he, God, would would send his Messiah, his King, who would come into the world to right it, uh, to bring healing and restoration to it. And he would do that by dying. Centuries before Jesus. We don't have time to look at these prophecies now, but it's one of the powerful pieces of evidence that Jesus is who he claims to be. Because his life, his death, fulfills to amazing detail a prophecy that had long been spoken of him. Jesus died because it had been long decreed by God that he would die. And so he made it his life's mission. But let me give you a fifth reason that Jesus died and a little warning. This is where it starts to get more personal but this is where it will take us into the the significance of Jesus' death. 
Jesus died on a Roman cross because of you. Jesus was executed in the most horrific way for you, for me. We sit here today as people on the central coast as those who are bound up in the death of Jesus. How can that be, you ask? Well, the answer is in verse 28 of that reading that we just had, where Jesus says, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This will take us to the heart of what Jesus' death has to do with being a Christian, of why he died. Now, that statement comes at the end of a context, if you are following along, where Jesus has announced he's going to Jerusalem to die, which is followed by a squabble by his disciples about who's going to get on his left and his right, who's going to share in the political greatness and glory that they expect Jesus is coming into as he comes into his kingdom in Jerusalem. Now, Jesus rebukes them for their upside-down view of greatness. Verse 26, he says, No, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. This is classic Jesus, where, where our view of life is upside down. Jesus says true greatness is found in humility, in service, in other person-centeredness, which then leads him to speak of his death as the supreme demonstration of greatness. Just as, he says, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now let's unpack that verse there. Firstly, the Son of Man came. What Son of Man, what is that? That is Jesus' favourite way of referring to himself. You might call it a nickname. He uses this name because no one could really pin down exactly what they thought it meant like they could other titles. So he uses this title, Son of Man. He's talking about himself, I, Jesus, when he talks about the Son of Man. And notice that he says, he came not to be served, but to serve. This is staggering when you consider just who this Jesus is. See, on the one hand, Jesus was just a, an ordinary Jew. He grew up in, a, in an unimpressive region in ancient Palestine, region of Galilee, so he's, he's a country hick. He's not from the cool city. Yet on the other hand, Jesus' origins stretch all the way back into eternity. See, the eternal Son of God became a man, Jesus. Now, there's a slight hint in the language there that Jesus has pre-existent origins. The Son of Man did not come, that is, to earth, to this world. Do not come, come from where? It's not usually how we speak of coming into this. We come from our mother's womb. That's about it. But for Jesus, as the rest of the New Testament makes clear, he actually comes from another realm, heaven. See, God, God reveals himself to be Father, Son, and Spirit. Not three gods, one true God, 
revealed as Father, Son, and Spirit. Now, that's a big thing to wrap your head around uh, because he's not like us. And that's one of the most important truths about God. He is not us. This God, he is altogether other to us. He is the creator of all things. We are the creature. God, he's eternal. He has no beginning. He has no end. He is sovereign and free, which means he depends on no one and nothing. He is completely self-sufficient. And God is spirit. He's not bound by physics or history to a particular moment in time. This is the one true God of the Bible. But here's the amazing thing. 2,000 years ago, this eternal, sovereign, free, creator God binds himself to his creation by coming as the man Jesus. Something profound actually changing in God forevermore as God takes flesh, he takes humanity upon himself in his son. Now, if the creator of the universe, of of everything, were to show up in his world, what do you think, what do you think the right expectation is of this creator, of this king, of this maker? Well, that he would be served. He's just a right-fitting understanding, expectation, isn't it? And yet here he is, the Son of Man, Jesus, the eternal God, the one through whom all things have been created, the one for whom all things have been created. And here he is saying, I've not come to be served, but to serve. I don't know where you're at with your picture of God. And so glad that you are here with us considering these things. But what we have here is Jesus giving you a window into who your God is. That the one true God is a servant. The one true God is so moved by love that he would come not to receive what is due, but to give what we must give him. But he gives it. Service. That's a mind-blowing statement that the God of the universe has come to serve. But it gets even bigger as Jesus unpacks the nature of that service, what it looks like. And it is to give his life, that is to die as a ransom for many. Now, ransom. We've watched enough movies and shows over the years to understand what a ransom is, yeah? In fact, just the other night, I was flicking through that old school thing called free TV. You know, the one where you flick through channels and it tells you what's on and you've got to watch the ads. And, and sure enough, on one of those, you know, kind of not dodgy channels, those obscure channels, there's this movie by Mel Gibson called Ransom. Anyone else flick through that the other night, get stuck on it? <laughs> it it's, it's showing my age, but it's from the 90s, like late 90s, I think. And it's just your classic ransom story, which good old Mel just you know, tells as, as the hero. He, he's a wealthy businessman, very, very rich. And so, of course, his kids are a great target for the bad guy, for the villain who kidnap the kid and who demand a massive 
ransom price from Mel Gibson if he's going to have his son back safe and sound. Now, there's twists and turns through that movie, but the point is a ransom is the price that must be paid in order to get someone out of a dangerous, desperate situation that they have no hope of getting themselves out of. The ransom is that price that must be paid for freedom, for redemption, for liberation. Now, back in the first century, a ransom was particularly attached to the slave market. Now, we hear that and rightly go, oh, slave market, horrific, yes. But just be careful, we don't have time to go into it, but in the first century, there were some significant differences between what we know as slave market today and back then. It was actually, could function as a form of, of welfare of someone who was in poverty actually getting themselves out of it. But nonetheless, the basic concept of being bound still applied, of not being free to just go and do as you please, but being owned by another. Now, a family member could come along and ransom one of their family members out of slavery by paying the ransom price. It's called the redemption, the, the ransom price, winning them freedom. So the ransom particularly focuses on the price paid with the result of the redemption won. Jesus died as a ransom for many. Jesus died to pay the price for many, to get them out of a desperate, dangerous situation that they had no hope of getting themselves out of to win them freedom. Well, okay, you might be thinking if you're tracking along, but still, what does Jesus' death 2,000 years ago have to do with me? So far removed. Well, everything. Because apart from this Jesus, you remain enslaved. You are in bondage apart from Christ. Now, how can that be? Because in one sense, we are among the freest people who have ever lived in human history, aren't we? Most of us have not lived through world wars. Uh, the wars have kind of been out there, but they haven't actually been bombs dropping on our head. We haven't been conscripted into war. We've enjoyed democracy. We've enjoyed economic prosperity. Uh, we, we are benefiting from technology, which brings all kinds of freedoms. We can work from anywhere. Now, all right, the, the last couple of years might have been a bit of a wet blanket on our sense of freedom... But generally speaking, we are not a country, a community, or a people who cries out for liberation. Ransom me, rescue me. We are doing just fine, aren't we? Well, the reason we think that is because our spiritual senses are so deadened. There is more to you, there is more to reality than what you can just touch what you can put under a microscope. We focus so much on what is right in front of us, the material, the physical, uh, the, the relational, maybe the emotional, maybe the psychological, the economical, the political. We focus on all these things and hardly ever 
the spiritual dimension to reality, to ourselves. And this is actually a symptom of the spiritual bondage we find ourselves in. That we are so dead to it, that we give so little thought to it, it's evidence that we are slaves. See, we cannot understand Jesus, his death, it's his relevance to us, unless we come to terms with what Jesus means by sin. Sin, that's a, a word that's just not really in our vocabulary, is it? Or our psyche, if we do use it, maybe it's because I ate too much chocolate on the couch last night. What a sin. But that's far from what the Bible understands sin to be, this thing which has caused us to be spiritually bound, enslaved. Let me run through a few categories that the Bible brings to what sin is. Number one, it's missing the mark. It's missing the mark, like missing the bullseye on an archery target or more just missing the target altogether. It's a comment on our moral life. We might like to think that we are good people, yeah? We work really hard to convince others, ourselves, that we're good, decent people. But actually, we've missed the mark on what true goodness really is. And I want to put to you that you even know this within your own life. See, apart from the Bible, apart from anything Jesus has to say, we all have some sense of standards which make me a good person, don't we? Some kind of moral framework, some kind of you know, self-given um, guide that I want to follow, that if I follow it, I'll be a good person. If I don't, I won't be. But, but, but how much of that do you need to have? I, I want to be a person of integrity. That'll make me a good person. But then how many lies and how many bits of deception can you have before you... I want to be kind, a good person is kind, but how often can I be selfish and rude and angry before? I want to help others, I want to be about others, but we have standards for our own lives that I want to put to you that if we're honest, we even miss that mark. And so what we tend to do is just keep moving the mark. And as we keep moving the mark, so that just wherever we're firing, it'll hit something, we have landed so far from what God says makes a truly good person. Which Jesus sums up, he says, you want to hit the middle of what God says a good person is? It is to love the Lord God with all your heart, all your mind, all your strength. And to love others as yourself. There's the centre of the mark. If we fail to meet our own standards, how much more have we fallen short, missed the mark of God's standard? Secondly, the Bible brings a category to what sin is, which is more than just missing the mark, it's evil corruption. It's committing evil. It's moral and spiritual corruption in our lives. Things that we have done through the years or failed to do. Things that we have said, that we have seen, that, that we just do our best to keep buried, to keep quiet. 
We don't want coming out into the light of day because we would be rightly ashamed. What is that? It's a comment on the evil corruption within us. Not just circumstances and contexts outside of us, but within us. And the evidence of this is seen in the brokenness we experience in ourselves, in our closest relationships. But the third category, the lens of sin that the Bible brings, which is the most significant dimension, is this one. It's hostility toward God. Hostility toward God, the very word that the Bible uses. Now, this can take a couple of forms. It can take the active form. You know, the fish shaking, I'm angry with God, how dare you, who do you think you are, I'm going to belittle you, I'm going to go out of my way to just do everything that you hate. It can take that form. But usually among us, particularly on the central coast, it's the much more common meh form. It's the whatever hostility towards God. It's passive-aggressive, if you like. See, you don't have a problem with God, you don't have a beef with him, you just don't give him a second thought. Why would you? If you leave God alone and he leaves you alone, you just get on your life, like, no disrespect, God, like, just, can I just get on with my life and I'll leave the God thing to the spiritual faith people? Hostility toward God. I mean, imagine this, uh, parents who uh, give birth to a son and raise this son from the very beginning, change his stinky nappies, all the sleepless nights, work really hard to provide for their son uh, food, clothing, material possessions, opportunities, Loving parents doing all they can to give this son everything they can in life. This son grows up and becomes a young adult. And then one day, just decides to pack his bags. Just chucks a bunch of stuff in the suitcase, heads out of the door on a plane headed for Costa Rica. Party capital of the world. Not because anything went wrong with his parents. No big beef. He just... He just thought he'll find a better life on the other side of the world. Didn't say a word to his parents, just left. Lands in Costa Rica, starts to set up a new life, gets a job, learns the language, works really hard, does what the boss expects of him, well respected within the workplace. Generous, like starts to make good mates. He's Aussie, right? So he's really generous. He's the one who'll always shout, his mates love him. Really good guy, top bloke. You should meet this guy. But you know the fuller story. You know what his parents have done for him, what they have sacrificed for him, that he has just walked away from, written them out of his life. All right, his mate, mates think he's a top bloke, but, but really the relationship that matters most... It's a horrific breaking of relationship. That's not just a little bit rude. That's not just a little bit offensive. That's evil. Well, multiply that by a thousand and a thousand and keep going and you start to get close to what we have done to God. 
God who has given us everything. The Bible says life, breath, and everything else. Every good thing that you have in your life, every opportunity, everything that you have used, your intellect, your moment in history on the globe to benefit you, maybe others, that's all been given to you by God. And yet we turn our back on him. Maybe not have a big fight and just turn our back on him and we look for a better life. Oh yeah, your mates might think you're a really good person. But the relationship that matters most with your God, shattered, broken, as we live lives of hostility towards God. As we do this, as we break this relationship with the God of life, we become slaves to sin, says Jesus. Anyone who sins is a slave to sin. A slave bound up... We actually owe a debt to God for the horrific way that we have treated him. Now, how does God respond at this point? Well, it's at this point that we so often like to say and think, well, God should just forgive and forget, shouldn't he? He's God, that's his job, forgive and forget. Would you have the same expectation of those parents who have lovingly raised this son who has left them for dead to go live in Costa Rica? Would you have the same expectation? Just forgive and forget, parents. Just get over it. I don't think we would. In fact, I think we would be completely understanding of a whole range of emotions. Hurt. Disappointment. Grief. Anger. In fact, we'd be worried if those things weren't there, if anger wasn't there. Well, that's exactly what the Bible says about God's response to our hostility. God meets the way that we've treated him with his anger, which the Bible most commonly describes as his wrath. But there are important differences as we think about an angry God between him and us as we're angry. Make no mistake, God is angry. He's furious at the evil, at the hostility that we've committed. But whereas our anger is so often disproportionate to the thing that provoked it, God's anger is measured. It's a fitting response to evil. Our anger is so often something that just flares up as an emotional outburst, maybe even driven by revenge. But God's anger is a settled, just opposition to evil. And so here's the thing. Our lives, your life, my life, when we stand before this God, our maker, he says that day is coming. When we stand before him to give an account of the lives that we have lived, that he's given in us, it will be shown that they have missed the mark by a long shot. That they contain evil and corruption. That we have lived in hostility towards the God that we owe honour and worship. It means that when we stand before this God, we will come standing under his judgement, under his wrath. And the debt that we owe him is so great that we have no hope of explaining our way out of it. You might be a great arguer. You might win all sorts of arguments. You will not win that argument before God. 
all the evidence will testify that we deserve to stand under his anger. And so we are a people who walk around in spiritual bondage, desperately needing ransoming, redeeming, forgiving. That is exactly what Jesus said he came to do. To give his life, to die as a ransom for many. Now as he used that ransom image, be careful, don't stretch it. Jesus doesn't at all intend us to think of God as the bad guy who kidnapped us and then Jesus the good guy paying off a debt to a bad guy. Not at all. God is the one who has sent his son Jesus to pay the debt. Jesus uses the image to to convey the danger, the desperation that we all face ourselves. The no hope of getting out of it. And so, God cannot and will not simply overlook the evil in our lives. It would make him evil. He's just, he can't. And so what does God do? Out of his great love for his world, for you, he sends his one and only son to die as a ransom for you. To pay the price to win you out of that situation. That we might be reconciled to God. See, only Jesus could do this. Only Jesus. There is no other way, there is no other philosophy, there is no other religion by which you can stand before God redeemed, forgiven. Because Jesus is unique among all human beings. Because he lived a spotless life. Only, always, ever hitting the mark, according to God. Always pure in thought, in word, in deed. Always, only, ever centering his life around God rather than hostile to him. Jesus comes as a man, a real man, and lives the perfect life that we should have lived. That we are expected to live. But because Jesus comes and does what we have not done, he can actually go to his death as a substitute. As someone who will swap himself out for sinners. Because the value on his life, his perfect life, is so high, is so great, that he can afford to pay the ransom price for any and every person who would look to him. Jesus came to die as a ransom for many, in the place of many undeserving sinners. Let me illustrate this to you with the two thickest books I can find on my bookshelf. Imagine, now you've got to imagine, right, but imagine my hand is my life. This is me, Jez. Imagine that's your life. And the ceiling, that's God. The God of life, the God of breath, the God of everything. Now, I was made to live in relationship with this God. But the thing is, there's this book. And there's this book which cuts me off from relationship with God. Why? Because it's a record of everything I've ever done, ever said, ever thought. 
all the things I've failed to do. See, we might think so much goes unnoticed. Not before God. He cares. He cares for your life. And so he notices. And so this book becomes a book of my sin. Of how often I've missed the mark. Of the evil corruption in my life. There's where I've lusted. There's where I've stolen. There's where I've lusted and acted on it. There's where I've... Hey, this looks like I've done something good. Oh, hang on. It was for my own benefit. This is just the record of my life. It's a book of my sin and so it cuts me off from relationship with God. I'm in bondage to it. Can't work it off. Here's Jesus. Jesus has no book of sin. Lives a perfect life that I should have lived, that haven't. He lives a perfect life in relationship with God. He goes to his death as a ransom for Jez. And in his death on the cross takes my sin, my guilt upon himself. It's not his, it's mine, but he takes it as if it's his. And he takes the just punishment of a wrathful, rightfully wrathful God upon himself and he dies with it. He's destroyed by it. But see, Jesus did have a book. This book only contains a record of his perfect obedience, love for God, love for others. And in Jesus' death, not only does he take my penalty, he gives me his perfect record. It's not mine. I don't deserve it. But he counts it as mine. God counts it as mine so that he looks at me, he sees me righteous. Not because I am, but because Jesus is and has gifted it to me. And so he sees me as his own, as his child. Forgiven, restored. Friends, This is the most amazing message you will ever hear that you must hear and that you must do something with. Jesus came to redeem you, to ransom you out of the spiritual slavery that you're in now, to enjoy life with God now and into eternity where there is no more sin, no more sickness, no more death. Let me finish with just two quick things. What does Jesus' death have to do with being a Christian? Everything. It means you can be a Christian. A Christian is a forgiven one. Someone whose debt has been paid, who has nothing to answer before God. That's a Christian. Not a do-gooder, not a churchgoer, not a nice person. A forgiven person. Jesus' death is central to that for the person who would Look away from themselves and to him as a redeemer, as a saviour. And we're going to unpack in the next couple of weeks how you do that. How do I become a Christian? What does that involve? There's the first thing. You can be a Christian. The very thing exists because of Jesus' death. Secondly, it means you are not your own. Your life is not your own. Many of us have heard this wonderful message, have responded to Jesus. Hear this afresh. Jesus' death means that your life is no longer your own. You, I, were enslaved to the master of sin. 
And in love, God ransomed you through the gift, through the death of his son. This means freedom from the penalty of our sin, but it doesn't mean independence from God. That's the very essence of sin. And so the Redeemer owns the one whom he has redeemed. You're his. The New Testament uses this exact language. You were bought at a price, so honour God. Friends, Christians, Christ people, people shaped by the cross, he bought you, he owns you, he loves you, but you're his, so honour him. This is what you exist to do now, to honour your Redeemer. Might this morning be a fresh reminder of the depths of your spiritual desperation that you've been rescued from. By him who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. There's a Christian. Not a do-gooder, hopefully good enough, God will accept me. No, 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 a ransomed sinner. Now who does want to live a life in honour of our Lord. Let me pray for us. Lord God, how amazing it is that you have not left us in the dark, though we have jumped on the plane, headed to the other side of the world to ignore you. We praise you that you have come for us in your son Jesus. And as we consider just why he came, the lengths that he went to to redeem us, we say, thank you. We say, praise you. We say, you are wonderful. Lord God, for those who are yet to experience the freedom that Jesus came to win, please bring them to Jesus, to his cross, to faith in him. For those among us who have done that, keep us there and continue to shape our lives more and more by the cross of Jesus Christ, your Son. We pray this in his name. Amen.